So, let's start with grounding this a little bit in history, right? In, in, in 1453, uh, in, in Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, um, it was besieged by the Ottoman Empire. And uh, Constantinople, at the time, it was the last probably portion of the Byzantine Empire, that last little remaining bit of the eastern leg of the Roman Empire. And it was, it was a well-positioned city to withstand a siege. Like it had two, it was a, rec, a triangular sort of shape. It had two walls facing uh, ocean sides and then it had one side facing the earth, um, like land. And it had, uh, you know, these walls on this land side were substantial. And it had ridden out many sieges in the past through its history. And it was thought that it would ride through this one as well. And within Constantinople was this uh, church building called the Hagia Sophia. And it was, um, in many ways, probably the center point or like a real focal point, really, of Christendom of the age. The New Testament was read still in Greek there. Um, they had vast libraries of ancient literature and old manuscripts and things like that. Um, and throughout the siege of Constantinople, many um, people from um, the city came to take refuge in the Hagia Sophia. All different faiths, uh, not all different faiths, all different uh, denominations, I should say. Like priests and monks and nuns, and then women and children and the elderly and the infirmed, the, the injured people, the uh, refugees that were taking shelter in the city during the time, they all came together to pray and break bread in the Hagia Sophia during the siege. Now, the Ottomans, the sieging Ottomans, had commissioned <coughs> excuse me, a Hungarian founder and an engineer to build for them a massive cannon and lots of other cannons, but they built this, the, the, the granddaddy of cannons, was built for them. It was huge. This thing could launch, you know, a, a half a ton um, black stone shot, almost two kilometers. It was terrifying, like the Death Star of cannons. The walls on it were solid bronze, um, you know, almost 20 centimeters thick. This was huge, this thing. It required 60 bullocks to tow it on its cart. It required a, a team of engineers to go before it to make the way level and to build bridges over creeks and undulations and whatever just to get it into position before these walls of Constantinople. This cannon could fire seven shots a day and it was terrifying. So as this cannon and the smaller ones around it were pummeling the walls, these walls began to give way and day after day of the siege the walls would, these shots would smash into the walls and those faithful people in the Hagia Sophia would pray. And then finally the great walls gave way and the Ottoman troops stormed the city and then they were given three days of unhindered looting of the city before then the, um, the Sultan came in and claimed what was left of the city for himself and for the empire. And now the Hagia Sophia, this grand, ornate, beautiful church building was, you know, a huge target when the city walls came down. The, the, the raiding troops went there, they, they assumed there was riches galore inside this place. So they went there, they smashed the doors down and then all the worshippers sheltering inside there just became themselves spoils of war. They were either um, butchered or they were shared among the invaders as loot. Now, 
Some of you who some of you know that story, I know, you know history, and some of you don't know that story and probably might have thought that all this praying and breaking bread that was going on in the Hagia Sophia during that time was going to lead to some miraculous bridge to safety for God's people. But it, what what is recorded, what is trapped, and what is captured in the pages of history doesn't show that. Sure, God might have had miracles happen during that siege, but not that we know of. And so this is a terrible story. And, and it's a reminder of mankind's bloody history and that this earth is broken. And this earth is a terribly cruel place and we all know it. And regardless of whether you're a believer in Jesus or you're an atheist or you're somewhere in that broad spectrum in between, some, you inherently know that this world needs fixing, that it needs to become a better place, that there's something wrong with it. Because even all of mankind's pursuits, like medicine and science and stuff, they're, they're all to make this world a better place. And we pursue a futuristic, like utopian civilization that we will live forever in, free from the effects of death. That's what science fiction is all about, isn't it? The medicine, the medical technologies that are available in science fiction, the way everyone just sort of lives and can get healed from cancer, this, that, and everything else. If you've seen that, that movie, that Matt Damon movie, um, is it Elysium or whatever? There's that, you know, that, that floating utopian kind of place where they can just, you know, bang, you're healed from whatever disease, you know. That's, that's science fiction because we want that. Deep inside us, we want it all to be made right. So where does this innermost feeling come from? Like, where do we get this idea? And I just want to start out also, before we get going, with a C.S. Lewis quote that he, he talks about of in his atheist days. He says, talking about his old self when he was an atheist, before he came to know Jesus, he said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? He's, Mr. Nani is right, hey. Like, what do we compare this broken world to to know that it needs to be set right? See, in the beginning of the Bible, when, when um, Adam and Eve, they walked with God, they were in paradise until it all went wrong and then they sinned. And since then, all of mankind, we've been struggling along through this sin load of history. And as we've already heard about in one account, of one siege in one battle that lasted a couple of months of one year of the thousands of years since this sin sentence has been passed. You know, mankind has been living in this real life paradise lost. But God in his grace has given us this, his word, the Bible, which we're going to read from very soon. And it shows us you know, who God is and what this mess of sin is and, and what our human nature is and how we can ultimately be saved through Jesus' death and how he is making all things new. So this is good, really awesome news for all of us that are trapped within this parenthesis of sin. Yeah, that's why I said parenthesis because it had a start. It's going to have an end. Okay? It's just a temporary time. So let's open up God's word today. And let's read about this death of death and the reinstatement of paradise. In the words of a famous person, Luke, this is going to be good. (laughs) Revelation 21, let's read. 
Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So right after we see in the end of the previous chapter, all men judged before the great white throne, John then sees this new heavens and a new earth. He sees the first heavens and the first earth had passed away. As we saw at the end of that previous chapter that Daniel took us through, they had fled away from God's presence. There was no place found for them. And when I think of this, I just think God strolls in and everything's just trying to scram out of his presence. It just can't stand. So it's just over at the extremities of whatever space is and it's just sort of crumpling into pieces. That's how I see this fleeing away. God and his throne, no place found for them. So then 21 starts out with this new heavens and a new earth. Now, whether that means that these are completely destroyed and, and remade or they're melted down and they're formed back up or whether they're severely renovated with all the bad bits pulled out of them, that many scholars will still argue about that, and they do. But John says, as he sees it, he says they are new. And Isaiah refers to them as new. So, I come to the conclusion that they are new. Exactly. No, but I am convinced, though, that there are elements of the old. Otherwise, how could it be called earth? Or how will we know it's going to be us on the new earth and not just people that look like us if there isn't some sort of connection with existing, like, conscious? <coughs> the thing to see, though, here is that is, this isn't some... A floaty, ethereal kind of place where there's just choirs and harps and a whole lot of white for eons and eons. All right. It's a new earth. It will be a physical, hands-on, touch, smell, see, hear, taste, whatever, maybe new senses kind of place. There'll be majestic landscapes, awe-inspiring wonders, architecture you've never seen, culture you've never experienced, and the places for exploration, knowledge to continually grow in. It'll be amazing. And if it's not that, it's going to be better than that. 
So the foreshadowing of this final perfect place was the original creation that God made and he said was very good. The stuff that we're, like the creation that we're living in now, like a wound down version of it. So the idea of this piece here is to get the idea that God has made again a new place for his people to live. A final and eternal safe home to live with his people forever, okay? Now, I know this sounds really, really obvious, but this is, how awesome news is this? How awesome news is this, really? Like, you remember the last time man and woman walked with God? They were in paradise, weren't they? Adam and Eve. And so from that, we understand that being in God's presence is paradise for his people. You think about that um, believing thief on the cross beside Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's what paradise is for God's people, to be with him. Now, Jesus and that thief weren't going off to the new earth, the new heaven. That's, that's yet future. They were going to that interim, like, heavenly realm where God currently is. At that, that um, if, like, if a believer dies now, that absent from the body, present with the Lord realm. Okay? This new physical earth is still yet to come that we see. And then perhaps, probably one of the coolest parts of this first bit of the chapter is this paradox of death dying. It says, death shall be no more. So, what we, what we experience on life here are, you know, the ultimate end of all things, like the reason that the whole universe is winding down, the reason like those beautiful flowers, like all the carnival of flowers that we're going to have here in Toowoomba very soon, the reason they're all going to eventually fade, wither and fall down and die, the reason we have to say goodbye to our old pets, our faithful old dogs, the reason we have to, with, you know, just tears falling out of our eyes and say goodbye to our grandparents and our mums and dads and sometimes even our children and man, the worst of times, even sometimes our babies. The sole reason for sadness in this world, death will itself die. <clears throat> now, I've drawn in my Bible, I'm a naughty boy, but I like drawing in my Bible now, I never used to, but... Um, I've drawn in my Bible like this little tombstone up here. I don't know if any of you can really read what's on it, but it says on it, death, Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. And like how, you know, it's a tombstone with death on it. Like, anyway, I thought it was cool and very creative and Jojo's looking at me going, lightweight. That was the, that was the epitome of my artistic prowess right there. But to me, it's just, it, it just sticks out so, so hard and so starkly that, you know, death will die. The, and, and the important thing for me to see in that is it's, it's going to be no more. There's not going to be that, it's, it's not going to be like a floating um, maybe in the background, like a hindrance for, for us on this new earth that maybe if someone slips up and eats the wrong apple or the wrong pear or kiwi fruit or pomegranate or whatever, that all of a sudden, you know, we're going to slip into death again. Like, it's, it's not there. It's, it's done. It's no more. Okay? It's stopped, finished, no more death. And the, this new world, this new earth and the new heavens that God's made there, it won't be winding down into oblivion like this one is. Like we've talked about this in, in sermons in the past, how this one is, is, is running out and it's winding down. 
this new earth and new heavens will be sustained forever perfectly by God. It, it will be as perfect in 100 trillion years as it was on its first morning, its first day. Perfectly sustained, it will never run down, there's no more death. And here is the sort of really clinching sort of verse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So let's think back to that combined prayer service in the Hagia Sophia during that siege. Those, those believers as they're breaking bread and praying together and in the background there is that distracting roar from those largest cannons in the world and then those earth uh, uh, shattering, shattering thuds as those walls, uh, those shots smash into the walls. And did any of those worshippers then know that the very next day, many of them would be raped and murdered and tortured or sold into slavery? And I wonder if in that throng of God's people, you know, where there is that real fear, that anticipation of what's to come, I wonder if this verse was ever read out. And I wonder how real it was to them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So what does it mean to you? Like, does all the pain and sadness and dying and death and the terrible stuff on the news, <coughs> are you resigned to it that you hear every day? Like, have you formed a callus to it? We just get used to it. That's just life. Do, do you really believe that one day you're never going to be worrying about these things, that it's not even going to cross your mind? It's so hard for us to understand this because of all, all the moments in life that we have, all the great ones, they're eventually brought low by the sin and sadness and pain and sorrow and death and whatever. But this is what we can hold on to today, God's people, Willow Burn, is that if you are one of God's people, then this is your eternal reality. And just think about it. Let your mind be blown for a little bit. and Let this fact you know, settle down through your mind and then sit on your mouth. And it's okay to keep growing like a big, goofy smile all sermon as we think about how great this is and how awesome this is. Thanks for backing me up on that, Parky. <laughs> yeah, that's right, very pensive. Um, <laughs> this is the new earth that we will live in, in paradise forever with God, directly, spiritually, bodily, all right, with Him, in His presence. Amen, absolutely. But... Here's the thing, though. Here is uh, the reminder, okay? Not everyone, not, not everyone in this earth gets to rejoice in this new heavens and this new earth. This is not for everybody. Those that don't get to share in this are listed. It's list the cowards, the cowardly. So these are people who did not preserve, oh, sorry, did not preserve, did not persevere to the end, okay, who probably traded out temporary earthly comfort for claiming Jesus all the way to the end. These are the people without faith placed in Jesus and his saving death. 
These are the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. They're all going to suffer the second death that we, um, Daniel took us through at the end of the previous chapter. And that's, that second death is eternity in a lake of fire with no chance of escape. But here's the good news, okay? If, if you are listening to me now and you are in one of those groups of people living an unrepentant lifestyle and you're, you're engaging in these things um, regularly and you have not repented of your sins and come to Jesus, then it's not too late to come to Jesus and enjoy this new earth one day. Paul gives the rundown on these sinful lifestyles in, in 1 Corinthians. Let's read it. Now, this is a letter to a church, okay? And he, he talks about these problems, these lifestyles in a past tense kind of way. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the thing though, he's talking to a church and he says, and such were some of you. All right, some of you. He's talking about members of the church that had those lifestyles, that were part of that and they had turned their, turned their back on it in their old, that's their old life. Okay, now they're following Jesus. And he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here now, by following Jesus, they've ensured their eternal destiny on this new earth. And they'll one day be completely with Jesus. Like we, Luke, we, Luke led us out in this in the intro and we've been thinking about it this morning, like with Jesus. <laughs> arm around him. It's going to be so awesome. So saving people, this is God's ultimate plan. As he says in verse 6, he's like, he, he's the beginning and the end. He desires for all people to come to him through his son, Jesus. The thirsty, anyone who's thirsty for him can come and drink from the water of life. This is that throwback to John 4 when he's talking to the um, Sumerian woman at the well. All right? And he talks about the... Um, and Adrian even alluded to this also when talking about the springs of life, you know, bubbling up from this unknown place. The springs of life bubbling up to eternal life for those who trust in him. And then once we are filled with this living water freely given to us by this living God, then we are free and able to champion this life and overcome and conquer in his name. And then we are given then the heritage of God's children. And John hits on this in one of his other letters. He says, see what's love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. So that's our heritage, man. All right. God's, God's kids, God's children, new earth. Wow. So those that come to him and conquer through him, like the Philadelphians in chapter 3, they will claim this heritage of God as their father and they'll live with him and the rest of God's people in this perfect place forever. Now, where do they live on this earth? 
Do they, are we going to go back and live in a garden? We're going to live in a cave? Tents? A five-star caravan park? There's an oxymoron. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, they might have five-star caravan parks. That's an impossibility, isn't it? Maybe with a really fancy pants fish and chips joint. No. We're going to live in a new city, a majestic city. Let's keep reading in, our, in chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. Excuse me. <coughs> and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see this new earth coming down out of heaven, coming down out of heaven to this new earth, this holy city, New Jerusalem, and it is beautiful. The imagery described here is, 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 a, is a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I haven't traveled heaps, but I've been to a lot of cities where people say, um, well, people say it's a beautiful city. You know, but I, I would never describe them as beautiful as my wife coming down 
um, the aisle towards me on our wedding day. I just wouldn't. She was beautiful and she is beautiful and um, yeah. And I'm sure those of us that have been to weddings and have seen this, all right, um, you've had this experience where you've been a guest and you're sitting there and there's all this murmur, okay, the cars are here, the bride's here. Bride is visible at the back of the church or wherever you're in and everyone's sort of scrambling to get a look but then some people want to also look back at the groom because they want to catch his face, they want to get his expression of his first, his expression of first, his, like first seeing his wife for the, coming towards him like beautifully adorned and looking spectacular. She's been planning for months this dress, this hair, this makeup, her, her, her jewellery, everything's been planned for so long. So they want to get his reaction, they want to see her and there's just this going on. I would just hate to be the photographers whose job is to get both of those reactions, but it's not their special day, so who cares about them, right? But this um, beautiful city, okay, I, I would never equate it to a bride as beautiful on her wedding day, except God's Word does. So it should make us sit up and pay attention here, all right? The city, New Jerusalem, described here has two meanings, okay? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a physical city, but it also considers the inhabitants, God's people, who are precious in His sight. And like that groom looking at his bride, they are beautiful and, and precious, God's people to God. Now, this city that's coming down, it has the appearance of a rare jewel. It's got a great high wall and it's wrapped entirely around the city and it's made of jasper. It's just like, wait, I thought we were on the new earth though. Like, why have we got walls? What's, what's with this wall? I, I didn't think there was going to be invaders coming with big like Death Star cannons to smash down this city and rape and pillage and plunder and take everything out of it. But see, later on in the chapter, we read that the, and we, we read also that in this wall, there is these gates and they're open all the time because it's always daylight and it's always safe. So what purpose does a wall have if the gates are always open? It's not a very good barrier, is it, if it's got holes in it? I think what the image is here is if you look at a city and it's big walls all around it, you can really only see the walls. And these walls, they're not just your filthy brick, your cinder block or whatever, okay? These walls are like a most rare jewel. They're made of jasper, which is this most rare jewel. So when you look at this city, the city's coming down, you can see these walls and it is beautiful. The whole thing looks beautiful and it's rare and it's precious. That's the image we get out of these walls. So you, Willowburn, God's people, are rare and precious and beautiful in His sight. Because, here's the thing, because you have been bought with the blood of His Son and you've got that clothed in, you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. It's, it's hanging over you. And that's why God looks at you and He sees you as beautiful and precious. So, <coughs> excuse me. 
So moving on, we've got the gates here. And the gates have the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on them. This is God's first chosen people, the Israelites. And this is indicating that it was through them that God's um, Son came into the world to redeem it, to make all things new, like to make us new as we commit to following him. As he said in this chapter, behold, I'm making all things new. The only reason he can make all things new is because Jesus has died and paid for all that sin and he's redeeming all things through himself. And we see the gates are facing out into all the nations in all directions of the compass, indicating that all people from all over the world are welcome into this kingdom of God. And the foundations have the names of the apostles of the Lamb inscribed on them, referring to the founders of the church. Because you think about what Jesus told Peter in Matthew. He said, you, you're, you're Peter, or you're Cephas, or, which was meant rock, you know, back in, those, in, in the Greek. So you, you rock... On you, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, what's Peter's a rock, but what's he built on? He's built on, he's referenced off a rock as well. And Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter uh, 2, I think it is, should have written it down. Yeah, chapter 2, uh, verse 20 in Ephesians, he says, built on the foundation of the apostles. You are, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Jesus being the, the original, the first stone, the reference stone, that everything else is referenced off, the foundation. And then the apostles are built on that, and so their names are inscribed on these foundations of this new city as well. So this is a city, all right? It's scoped, it's designed, it's engineered, it's built by God, for him and his people. So it is, without saying anything else, obviously spectacular. This is the culmination of God living with his people. Where does God want to live with his people? He's going to live in a city that he's made. And even Abraham, way back when, Abraham was looking forward to this city because the, the, uh, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, when he's talking about um, when, he's, when he's listing all those heroes of faith and Abraham is mentioned in there and he's talking about Abraham's um, really um, uh, Abraham's focus for living a, a righteous life here on earth was the fact that he was looking forward to this very city because it says, for he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So imagine this place. I mean, Abraham was looking forward to it Imagine the infrastructure that will be created by the God who made everything here. And he now adorns his new earth with a new capital city for his people to live with him in. Just imagine that. Imagine the infrastructure. And Jesus has said, Jesus said when he was going away, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. This is the place he's preparing Imagine what our, our, our tradesman from Nazareth, risen King, Saviour, Jesus, is putting his creative hands to right now. Imagine what it looks like. Just imagine it. We'll walk through it one day. We'll live in it. And this city, man, it, it is no small city either. It will dwarf any of the largest metropolises that this world's ever seen. 
There's the angel speaking with John. This angel once had this bowl and it was pouring out God's wrath on the earth. He now picks up a golden tape measure and starts measuring this place. And it's huge. It's 2,200 kilometers on each side. So to give us some scale, if we're in Toowoomba, say, say we're on one corner of this city, the other corner is somewhere over on the border between Western Australia and the Northern Territory. Another one of the corners is somewhere up in Papua New Guinea. And the corner opposite us is somewhere over in the ocean between Australia and Indonesia. Imagine the footprint, big square footprint like that. The size of this city, it's tremendous. And then the city has height too. The same as its length and its width. Now that is incredibly tall skyscrapers. Or, I like my mind to wander a little bit, maybe it includes the subterranean levels. Maybe this includes, you know, grand architecture reaching high into the heavens with like space elevators and spaceports and stuff for exploring the new heavens. Imagine that. I don't know. I just want to be there. I just want to see it. I just marvel at this place forever. And what will we be doing? We will be marveling forever at this place and we'll be giving God glory out of that. And John goes on then to describe the walls and the foundations. They're adorned with all these types of precious stones. See through gold. We don't, need to, we don't have time to go through the meanings of those stones and things. You can do that yourself if you really want to. This place is going to be an amazing place full of exploration just to see and marvel and glorify God with forever. There's obviously no temple there. Luke hit on this this morning as well. Temples was this sort of idea um, where, where, where men go to meet God. That's the idea of what a temple is. There's sort of like a portal between God's realm of heaven and man's realm of earth. You can sort of think of them that way. But there's no need for that anymore because God is with his people. Like we don't go to a temple, we just go directly to God. And God will illuminate the whole place with his glory. There'll be no need of sun or moon. I reckon they'll still be there. They'll be part of the new heavens. There'll be a new sun, new moon. But we won't rely on them for our energy source. We won't rely on them for their light because God's glory will be there. He will provide everything. He, he is the infinite source of love and energy and life and, and joy and health and peace and goodness and rest. And then the new earth also is inhabited by other nations. So I assume they've got their own cities as well. And the Bible says that the kings of the earth will bring glory from these nations into this city through these giant pearl gates, these giant pearly gates, to use that reference. So in, in a similar way to like little, little localities, little, little kings, little chiefs might bring tribute to the larger um, reigning king or emperor of the whole country. So these kings of the earth will bring their glory into this glory. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost look, feels like a tangible thing, glory, that we can, you can, we can give or be collected and harvested and brought in to give glory to the king of kings. And then our final statement there, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So never will God's people look over the walls of this new city and see on the horizon 
are hordes coming to conquer it, with big cannons to smash the walls down, to pillage and plunder and, and take from them. Never again will they see that. This is the eternal safe home for God's people. Do we get that? Because we are citizens of heaven, yeah? Thanks. Absolutely. Amen. Philippians 3 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies. So these ones, I know some of us you know, have very fit, able bodies, but these are lowly bodies in compared to the new glorious bodies that we will have in this new place. And he will transform our lowly bodies to be like glorious bodies by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So citizens, we, oh, look, we've got the citizenship debacle going on in our parliament at the moment now, at the moment, don't we? Like they're all whinging about which country they came from and pointing fingers at you came from here or you were born here or your parents are from there or which and whatever. And it all seems so petty. But I can... I can sort of understand it because with a, along comes with a citizenship comes an allegiance, doesn't it? And citizens from a particular country, no matter where you take them, they, they always seem to speak a certain way. They always behave a certain way. And they always live their life according to the cultures in their home, in their home country, in their, in their cultures. So what does this mean as citizens of heaven, what does this mean for us as citizens of heaven passing through this world? Will the people that you interact with this week, right, will they know that you are some sort of foreign weirdo? Will they? Will they know that you are a foreigner and that this world isn't your real home? And, and how will you then choose to speak of them of your real home? The real place where your real passport is made, comes from. Does this city and this new earth and new heavens, does it really amaze you? Does it really want you, does it really make you want to tell people about your true home, like you would of your earthly country? If you go to... Swaziland, are you going to be telling people about how great Toowoomba is and how beautiful the flowers are and the trees and, I don't know, maybe the brisk winters if you're into that? Are you going to be boasting about your home country? Or do you just want to selfishly hoard all that good stuff that you've been blessed with? This world is not your home. Okay, this world is not your home. Your home so much, your real eternal home so much better than this. Now those people of God, let's go back to our beginning, okay? Those people of God that died in the higher Sophia, following that siege, that lost their lives, they know this now. And those people of God that through Jesus, they overcame the abuse and the torture and the slavery they know this now. And those people of God who naturally feared what man would do to them, but they trusted God above it all, they know this now. 
our eternal safe home um, on the new earth, in the new heavens, in this new Jerusalem, is far greater than this one. Let's keep our eyes on the prize as we go out into the week. And I'm just going to close now with a bit of a chop and an add to a Randy Alcorn phrase because he says this so much more on point than I could ever. I'm going to add my own bits into it. But to all of God's people, those slaughtered in the highest Sophia, those tortured, raped, abused, sold into slavery, those people persecuted to death in Iraq and Syria, North Korea, and many countless others of our loved ones who have passed on and departed prematurely, but in God's good time, to a place far greater than this one, but far less than the final one to come, which all of us who know King Jesus will behold together, slack-jawed, on the new earth's first morning. Yeah. Amen.